Great week. All right. For, first things first, uh, I want to share with you. Um, let's see if I can find my. Where did I put it? My daughter is in seminary, as you all know, and she's in her last semester. And so they're at the place of drawing things down and, you know, getting everything tied up into a nice little neat bow, right? So, and I can't find the paper, which I don't even really need it because I'm not going to use that part of it. She wrote a seminary paper this very week on the very subject that we went through last week. Last week, what I did is I presented our lesson by, by showing you the doctrines about church itself that are being presented to us as we journey through the book of Acts, right? We looked back and we saw uh, the first thing we looked at with a healthy church is uh, from the perspective of this author, we have to remember always what the author's purpose is for writing this, right? So what are basically the two things that we're at saying that that is what the author's purpose is for us here? What, is, what are our purposes? The author's purpose for this book. The birth of the church. He's recording the, the birthing of the church, right? Now, since it's the birthing of something, it means it's the first introduction of something, right? right. Anytime that something is introduced to us for the first time in Scripture, what do we know about that record? Okay, well, certainly we know it's historical. But if it's the first mention of something in Scripture, like you wanted to define the word day, where would you go? What is a day? Genesis 1, 1, right? Okay. And the first mention of a, of a topic or a word in Scripture is its most clearly defined understanding. That's kind of a rule that we know inductively. For those of you who are new in precept, this is something that it's kind of one of those principles that you're going you're gonna to get to hear from me on a regular basis, and this is one of those times. Know that Acts is recording the birthing of something, the church. This is its first mention in Scripture. Therefore, the things that we're going to be seeing through the book of Acts are going to be its most clearly defined understanding of what church is either supposed to be like or about. Is that kind of cool to know that? So if you know that, then one of the ways that you might analytically progress through this book would be to simply be looking for the principles about what does a healthy church look like, right? From what you're seeing demonstrated through the stories that are presented as we move through here, right? So the birthing of the church and the spreading of the gospel then, we're going to be saying, okay, in chapter 1, what did we see? What did we see in chapter 2? What did we see in chapter 3? And you can look at just the, the, the obvious points. Well, this happened, and then this happened, and this happened by events. Or you can also analytically look at it and say, okay, what am I learning about what the church is supposed to be, that concept of the church? In other words, a doctrine. You're learning about a doctrine, the doctrine of the church. Last week, I brought in a book that's called All the Doctrines of the Bible, and it's by Lockery, the particular book set that I have. Um, And in there, there's a whole huge section on doctrines about the church. You can read for hours in there about various doctrines, things you never thought of. You know, you went, oh, okay, that's true. I never noticed that. Why? Because when you do something analytically, it helps you to, to both... Um, evaluate and to meditate on it from that one narrow perspective so that you develop it more fully, right? right? Okay, so that's what we did last week. I tried to help you look at uh, at what we looked at last week in those 
two chapters and do it from the perspective, what did we learn about a healthy church? So that was really cool. And we also had talked last week about um, a second thing that we're looking at besides that one is how this book seems to be uh, presenting to us doctrines about uh, the Trinity. Who is God the Father? Who is God the Son? Who is God the Holy Spirit? In relationship to what? The church, right? Because in the Old Testament, who was God? Right? He was God to, the, obviously God to the world, God to the nation, but he specifically was God to the nation, right? That nation Israel. Now we're into this new thing called the church. Now we're saying, and who is God now in relationship to the church? To the people. Right? To the, and to the people in the church, right? Okay, so we're wanting to see God from a slightly different, different skew, a little different perspective. It's focused on, in relationship to the church, who is our God? Now, what is really great is he is the same God always to all people throughout all history. But there, there are defined roles of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I, we, I suggested that maybe we would want to develop our un- understanding as we move through Acts because it seems like it just keeps presenting various perspectives of who they are as far as their defined roles as in, or office or whatever you want to call it uh, in relationship to the church. So we did that. We looked at their relationship to and in the church. Um, and demonstrating then those essential and healthy things about what a healthy church looks at. So, my daughter wrote a seminary paper on this very subject just last week. It was so funny. She had no idea that this is what I was teaching. And she sent to me, um, it was must have been about two days ago or, or so, he, she sent me her paper and she said, Mom, I want you to read this. She said, this was really an interesting assignment. Um, it was a very challenging assignment. Here's what it was. Um, key elements that she had to include in this paper basically are vi- amazingly exactly what we're, we're uh, looking at here next. Her assignment was this, compose a critical and constructive evaluation of her current church home and conclude whether her church was in adherence to sound biblical teachings on each of them. Okay? And these were the listings. Now, I'm going to put them up here because what I want you to see as we look at these is how many of these have we already seen, demonstrated, as we've had uh, through the book of Acts, this new doctrine called church de- uh, demonstrated to us or spoken to us through these events? These were the things that she had to look at. Uh, teaching of sound biblical doctrines. Now, what did we look at even last week about the teaching of sound biblical doctrines? Who was, in whose name are they to preach these things, right? And do you remember when they were released from jail? What did they? What did the angel tell them to him to go and do? The whole message, right? The whole message. So, teaching of sound doctrine was number one on her. On her list. And uh, when I say sound doctrine, I mean sound biblical doctrine, obviously. Uh, another thing that was in here was she had to evaluate church leadership and structure. Now, this week, have we seen any hint at good uh, understanding of leadership structure, how they should structure our church, and maybe roles that were actually clearly defined as to who does what? Did we not see that? What did we see this week on that? 
Right. And, and then when the um, apostle said, we need you to do this because why? What was it not good for? Because they didn't need to be serving tables. Right, right. Right. So they actually, in this particular chapter, we see them actually say, this is why we need to have different people doing different things. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is we're going to be distracted from what we feel is most essential for us in our role. Okay, so she had to look at church leadership. She also had to look at church discipline. Now, have we seen anything so far about church discipline? What have we seen so far? How about Sapphira and Ananias? There was a really good one, right? So in the... the, uh, event that was presented to us, what happened with them? They died. They lied and they died. I thought that was a great title for the chapter. (laughs) They lied, they died. And I thought, you know, I should have had that as a quote, you know, for my children as they were growing up. You lie, you die. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the church discipline was another one. Then the next one was evangelism. Okay. Uh, evangelism, so far, have we been seeing evangelism dis- displayed to us? Yes. Have we seen, okay, and here's my, my question. When I say the word evangelism to you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Pardon? Revival. Revival. Okay, well, that's good. Repentance. Missionaries. That's the first thing that came to my mind. When I think of the word evangelism, I think of, yeah, people who get on a ship and go all the way over across the ocean somewhere and evangelize people somewhere far, far away, right? Correct? What have we seen in the gospel uh, record so far about evangelism? Did they get on a ship and go far, far away? Yes. Evangelism starts where? At home. Isn't that interesting? We didn't really talk about that subject at all, but if you, it, it, would you say that's a legitimate doctrine that's demonstrated through, the, through what we're looking at in the book of Acts so far on the subject of evangelism? Yeah. Yes, and actually, that's very interesting, isn't it, Margaret? They didn't just go out in the streets and go to, to people who were not church or churchgoers. They actually did some evangelism within the church. They would go to the temple. To the, of course, in their case, they're going to temple because they're still practicing Judaism, and so they're trying to bring them in. But, but still, it's a principle that God, I think, is showing us that it's kind of subtle if you aren't looking for it. But once you look for it, it's blatantly obvious that, that evangelism does start at home first. Well, isn't there a temple Isn't there part of the temple for those who weren't really Jews who could come to worship? Well, yeah. They had places like synagogue areas where they would gather to do their teaching and so forth. Yes. Yes. Okay, so the, there was evangelism. Um, another one was that she had to cover was discipleship. And that one entailed uh, also exhortation and um, edification. Now, the reason I think they expounded when they gave her this thing on, on the idea of discipleship, when we think of discipleship, what do we generally think of? Who do we think of? People that are in the church 
Okay, well, it could be people. See, and I don't generally think of discipleship of people in in the church. Uh, my brain goes, people outside the church, bring them in. Let's, yeah, either new believers or people who are seekers, right? right? And so what I found interesting is when they, when they gave the uh, outline, the, what, do you call, what do you call that when you're in college? Because I never went. The, a syllabus. The syllabus. Thank you, Martha. He said, they said discipleship, and they included exhortation and edification of believers. So it's not just the idea of discipleship. So at this point, then you say, oh, discipleship. It doesn't always have to be just babies that get discipled, right? And it doesn't always have to be people that are not yet even in faith that you would disciple, which actually is more like evangelism. (laughs) That's really more like evangelism. But we don't think of it that way mostly. So kind of clearly defining that is, I thought, kind of cool, you know? And then to understand then that edification and exhortation can also happen as sisters meet, one-on-one, and you have lunch together, and you go to a movie, or you go shopping together, or, you know, you put together puzzles, or whatever you do, right? Discipleship exhortation was one of the things that she had to evaluate. And then the last one was um, worship. And it was to include both corporate and private. How the church is doing in regards to encouraging those couple of things. I thought that was really cool. So would you say at this point, have we hit almost on all of those at this point? We really have. Even the worship part, what have we seen concerning worship as far as demonstration in the book of Acts so far? Yeah, yeah, and the subject of prayer always comes up when you think about worship, and it talked about them, how they would come together, and they would be in one accord, and they would have all things in common, and they would, they would share, it talks about this fellowshipping that was going on, so I'm, I'm just putting this back up as a quick, very quick review for you in regards to understanding that a healthy church apparently has, at least in principle, if, uh, um, points concerning each of these subjects here. Yes, it incorporates all of these principles. And for balance and health of a good church, you should be able to stop and evaluate your own church and say, do I see these things in the church that I am uh, involved with? As we continue in our study in Acts, I encourage each of us to attempt to identify these foundational doctrines of each of these um, components and then make Listen our minds to clarify our understanding through the Word of God. If you are off on any one of these things independently, for you to, as we go through the book of Acts, since it's the first presentation of a new subject, it's its most clearly defined understanding and best information for us. If you say, okay, what do I see going on here as far as evangelism? What do I need to know? And you can begin to make that list and start to define that more clearly in your mind. What does that actually mean? I honestly do not think that most of us evaluate our churches this well, this thoroughly. And this was a challenge that the seminary gave to you know, my daughter. And so when she passed it on to me, and then she sent me her evaluation of our church. So I got to read that. I said, oh, I said, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, you know, will Rob get to read this? <laughs> Vanessa said, oh, I, I don't know. She's, well, she's always embarrassed. Well, my writing's not that good. I don't want to, you know. But anyway. 
But her evaluation was really good. It was very genuine. It was very honest. It was very kind. It was, it was very, to me, exhorting in the areas. And in there, as a matter of fact, in, his, in this um, uh, syllabus, they said, please also note the things where you see weaknesses. We want to know what are your strengths in your churches and what are your weaknesses. And all I thought was Dallas Theological Seminary is gathering great insight onto what's a good and what's a bad from the perspective of all these students who are serious about their faith walk with God. And I thought this was probably kind of smart on this. And I can see why they're doing it at the end of her degree time. It's like after she's had time for all this training and all these classes, now they're, they're going to pick these students' brains to say, what do you see for a healthy church? Because after all, they're sending out these seminary students to to be those who are going to be catalysts and workers to create healthy churches, right? So they're asking them to think this all through and, just, and determine. Basically, here's, here's my assignment to you and I, too, since I feel you all are seminary students. I mean, really, what we're doing in here is, is tough work. And so I want you to then consider through prayer and meditation if these things are seen in our own church, and if not, how we personally might contribute to the improvement and health of our churches. You know, we co- this group, we come from a lot of different churches. And so, in, you know, if each of us go out, so to speak, and take with us the insights and the truths that we learn here about what is a healthy church, what God considers a healthy church, how that is really to be demonstrated, right, through the lives of its of its parishioners. After all, a church is not a building, it's people, people. right? And so if there's a way that we can learn uh, um, these insights in a way that we really utilize them in our lives, we can take them back and put them into some kind of practice and make improvements in our world, right? In our churches, in um, in our groups, even our small groups that we might be in. Are we doing these things? Teaching sound doctrine, it, what, what do we see in our leadership, our church leadership and structure? Is it measuring up to what the Word of God is showing us? What about church discipline? Are we today actually still executing good, solid church discipline when it's needful, right? Evangelism. We know evangelism is always a hot one for every church. So evangelism is probably the strongest strength of most churches. Um, discipleship. That one's a little tends to be sometimes a little weaker, although it's super essential. If you want your body of Christ to be strong and healthy, they need to be in some kind of discipleship with one another and worship, and uh, which would be corporate and private time. So, I thought that was really insightful that the Lord gave that to her, and she sent this paper to me. And I went, "This is just what I started teaching in my class." That's so weird, and it, it isn't even exactly a direct. Um, teaching in this book. It's not like the book is written for the purpose of teaching you church doctrines. It's more like you're just seeing it, you know. But how obvious do these church doctrines become to you or have they become to you as you've been going through this? Has has it been popping up stronger all the time? You're going, oh, they're doing this. Oh, that's how that was. Oh, that's, you know, how God intended that thing to unfold or to happen. It, It has been really fun to see that. So, I just encourage you to continue on that. And so, with that said now, I think what we're going to do is move forward into this week's homework because it is packed. And there's, it's, um, 
more than we're probably going to be able to get through. But we'll do our best to do as much as we can, okay? All right, so tell me, where did you start in the book of Acts? Give me some uh, basic things that we would have done. When you began to do your observation worksheet in in Acts chapter 6, I've noticed the last couple of uh, weeks, even in homework, um, I didn't necessarily see a direct statement where she said, do your observation worksheet, right? But she does want you to do that. You know that, right? When you start a new chapter, you do an observation worksheet. Now, who, tell, who can tell me, if you don't have a clear understanding of how to do an observation worksheet, where are you going to go to get that information? Your, your, say it again. That's right. Your how to study your Bible uh, little resource book. Let me pull mine out and show it to you so that everybody knows about it. For those of you, because we do have a couple of new people who are showing up. This is the, the book that you're going to need. And um, this may not be the same the way your book will look. It might look slightly different, but it's the same thing. It's how, uh, the new How to Study Your Bible by Kay Arthur. And in here, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, are the basic things that you need to know about how to do a, an observation worksheet. Starting in chapter 2, it says focusing in on the, or no, chapter 3, it's focusing in on the details. And if you will go through that particular chapter, you will see, and it's very tiny, the chapter's not long, you're talking just a few little pages, so don't be intimidated by it, but if you'll just go through, it'll tell you, do this, do this, do this, do this. Now, when you go back to your homework, sometimes Kay will not have listed every one of those steps. But I still say you should do them, okay? Even if she doesn't tell you to do them all, you should attempt to do as many of them as you possibly can because this will give you a thorough observation on that chapter. In here, it's going to do things like, say, look for contrasts and comparisons. Mark all your terms of conclusion. Look for simple lists within the text, like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, whatever. Uh, And if you see those, mark them in a distinctive way. And she tells you how in here. Um, She'll tell you, uh, mark all your key words and begin to make lists on things that you think you know, are, are important enough that need to be uh, expounded on in your understanding. Th- things like God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Would you say those are important? Yeah. yeah. So always mark those and always do a list on them, even if Kay doesn't tell you to do it that week in your homework. Okay? So those are things that you can, you can do. Now, with all that said, I understand that sometimes our week's homework is jam-packed and it's hard to add anything more in. So I would recommend that first and foremost, get the homework done that Kay asks of you. But I can tell you this, the more thoroughly you do your own personal observation worksheet, the more of that homework that you get into and start, she starts asking you questions, the easier it's going to be. Because you'll have basically almost done some of the things that she'll ask you to do later. As you move through the weeks, uh, questions and and um, assignments basically on day three she'll say do such and such on on day four then she'll say something else well if you've done a thorough observation worksheet you might get to day three and say oh i've already done that yay right (laughs) because why you did your thorough observation of that chapter 
So that, that is the benefit of doing it all on your own up front. And the great thing I think sometimes about it is without having progressed through and waited for her to give me that assignment, having done it on my own first up front, I feel like often I'm much more impartial. I am more balanced. In, as I make those observations, there's less influence of where she's trying to lead me. So if I've done those, those observations first up front, and then when I get there and she says, now I want you to do this, and you go, oh, I already did that, and then go back and pull it out, lay it next to what Kay is saying, and then start answering her questions, and you're going to find that you've, number one, you've done it more thoroughly. Number two, you weren't biased by where she was trying to lead you. So you've, you've already done it yourself, okay? So that's your little bit of training this morning for inductive Bible study. I encourage you guys to get, do those observation worksheets thoroughly. Use your how-to study books to give you that, those steps of what you need to do, okay? And we get lazy as we move on. The longer we... Yes, we do, Heinz. The more we do this... <laughs> he's like, no, not me. <laughs> so can I look at your... Let me see your observation worksheet, Heinz. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's, let's start with... Chapter 6. Tell me what key words did you see in this chapter? Okay, the Word of God. Moses. In chapter 6, Moses? I get, well, okay, yeah, you, if you, you might want to... You probably would have marked it after you did chapter 7. You would have gone back to mark it in 6 knowing that it's... A, a flowing thought, right? How, do, how does chapter 6 relate to chapter 7, by the way? It, it's just a continuation, right? It's one whole thought. In a way, um, you really can't separate the two. It'd be better if it wasn't even divided into two chapters. It almost really is one full thought, right? Okay, so yes. In, in, with that said, Craig, yes, Moses. <laughs> she, said she told us to do it starting in Acts 6. So. Right. Okay. Okay, so good. So that's right. It's only I can only think I have it marked once. To, no, twice. You're right. That's in verse 14 too. Okay, so we have Moses. What else? That's in chapter seven. Let's go. Let's stay with six first. Always oh, at the end. The disciples. The fall. All right. You're right. Verse eight on. I'm so sorry. My brain is. Actually, verse five. Okay. Five, Stephen, yes. If I just looked at my observation worksheet, I would see this, right? I'm just, yes. Okay, so we see Stephen starting in verse 5. And the Holy Spirit. Certainly the Holy Spirit is a key word. Prayer. Prayer. I'm sorry, say that again, Martha. Yeah, yes, the Jews in general. Absolutely. And, and when you look at the Jews, do you see them end up being kind of an, a, a contrasting to something in this particular way they're presented? The Jews, who are they contrasted with in the flow of conversation here? Who's the other group, people group? The believers, right. And how are the believers described in here? How are they called? There's the word congregation that comes up. Where are they first mentioned? Pardon? The brethren and the disciples. Now, if you did not, if you missed that, um, I would like to take you back. Go back to verse 1 real quick. 
At this time, the disciples were what? Increasing in what? In number. So who is that not just talking about? There you go. It's not just the 12 apostles. When that word disciple is used, in this context, disciples is speaking of who? Everybody. All those believers. It's the congregation. And so Kay had us mark that later on in our in our homework assignments to, to make sure we saw that. So on your list of, of uh, key words, it's a synonym to believers. It's a synonym to uh, the congregation. It's a synonym to those who are of faith, right? So the word disciples becomes a part of congregation, not the 12. The 12 are going to be marked distinctively different right. just for the purpose of they seem to have a distinctive role in this so far, do they not? It seems to be profoundly enough distinctive that we need to mark it. Now, are, are the 12 apostles believers? Of course they are. But in this context of this book, they need to be marked distinctively because they do seem to have a distinctive role enough that we want to mark them in a special way so that we keep them kind of together and see the things that are going on with them. But certainly all the things that are said about believers is true about the apostles as well because they are believers. Okay. All right, so we have in verse 2 then a distinctive marking of who? The 12. Thank you. So there you've got those two groups that are in the household of faith. The disciples or the congregation and then the 12. All right. What else? Anything else in there? Yes. Yeah. Anytime you see those, those pronouns or whatever you want to mark them to. Yes. Yes. All right. Now, let's, if you, as you went through uh, the opening of Acts where did you see a break and then a beginning of a second paragraph? Okay. So 1 through 7 then seems to be the first segment, right? And then following from 8 on to 15 seems to be the next segment as far as the chapter division that they've got marked out in chapter 6. Okay, so what do we see going on in 1 to 7? It seems like there's some bickering going on here, doesn't there? A conflict, right? So let's look at this. There's a, and in the text, it says it's a complaint, right? It's a complaint. So what is the complaint? Yeah. So let's put on here. And, and it mentions this one people group to a couple of people groups. Who are they called? Right. The Hellenistic Jews against the native Jews. If, uh, if you are doing that good, thorough observation um, work that you're supposed to do at the beginning, you would have noted these two people, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews, as a contrast, showing that, first of all, there's a complaint going on, and it seems like one is feels like they're being pitted against the no, another in an issue. And so you might want to mark this as a contrast. How would identifying that and marking it as a contrast help you in, in some way to better understand what's going on in this particular uh, cha- uh, paragraph here, of 1 through 7? Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, this is really cool. Are these 
uh, as we, we move on, we're going to look at it better, but are these, speaking of people in the household of faith, that the, that the, that the 12 are serving, or the, the disciples are just serving, or are they outside of the, the new church? No, they're in the church. Do you think they're in the church? Okay. Okay, so, okay, but it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. You know what? That is the cool thing about this. Let, okay, let's talk it through just a little bit because we, as you move through here, one of the things that I thought was really cool is how we looked at the Hellenistic Jews because you should have done some investigating on this, right? So let's talk about this. We have, it's the Hellenistic, H E L L E N I S. The Hellenistic Jews, and it, and they are against the native. Uh, yeah, they said Hebrews, didn't they? So let me put that: the native Hebrews. Well, it really doesn't point out language so much as it does everything else. It's, and the only way you're going to know that is by doing what? What's your step to do inductively? Who, what, where, when, why? A word study. Exactly. Do a, and ask and interrogate the, the text itself, which will be step. We're going to call it step two, although you can do it in either order. But step one would be, let's just do a word study so we clarify better what the Hellenistic Jews are. So when you looked up the Hellenistic Jews, did you do a word study on that, anybody? Yes, I did. Oh, good. Tell me what you learned. Number 1675. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these people can speak Greek only and not Hebrew. Oh, well, that's interesting. Now, mind it wasn't that specific, but still, okay. So it's saying that their native language is Greek as opposed to Hebrew, okay? Their general customs are, are, tend to be on the, you know, from the Greek culture. Right. And why is that? Why do you think that they tend to have Greek as their language and their customs seem to be Greek? They're from Greece. Okay. Well, not necessarily, but they have been living amongst the Greek people. Yes. Okay. Now, when we move on in this chapter, is there a place that gives us a little bit better understanding about them? When you move beyond verse 7, do you get a little more understanding about who these Hellenistic Jews are? Yes, it sure does. It says, but it's, it says that Stephen is doing certain things, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, and then it goes on to, to explain them. Now, how we merge these two groups in, in understanding them a little bit is by going on then to investigate who are the freedmen, who is this, who are this particular group, the synagogue of the freedmen. Did anybody do a word study on that? Okay. Yeah, tell me historically what has happened through the generations with the Hebrew people. Where are we at, the, at this place where we are called Rome? They've been conquered. They've been conquered over, over and over and over, right? And in the process of that, starting with Babylon, remember when they were, we just came out of Ezekiel, so we know they were carried off into Babylon. After Babylon, which nation rose up and took over? 
Medo-Persia. Don't forget them, the Medes and the Persians. And then Greece, and then Rome. And which, which of these are we under now? We're under Rome. So what we now know is if we stop, it, it is not recorded in here, right? You have to stop and say, where are we in history in a timeline? Another inductive process, which is really important for us. If you just do a timeline and say, okay, where are we? What has happened so far? Who is this synagogue of freedmen? And if they were slaves set free, where, what do you mean they were slaves? Why, why might they have been slaves? Well, look at the history right? Where are we in this timeline? Apparently, at some point, these were people who were taken into into slavery by conquering nations and people groups, right? So the fact that these are people who are living... Now, when they defined in verse 9 where these people have been living, how was that defined for us? What are the locations? And Kay, had you mark it on your map, too, by the way? Did you see it on your map? Hold on a second. Let me pull my map out. Maybe. Yes. Yes. Right, right. Because so in the fir- in the first few verses it says that something arose. It was a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of bread. So the apostles summoned the congregation. So it sounds like it's a congregational problem, right? And so in that, however, what's cool is what you do is you're able to take that information and tie it together with the information below. By the two subjects that get brought up, number one, who are Hellenistic Jews? Number two, who is the synagogue of the freedman, right? And by coming up with insights on both of those two groups, you, you like develop cultural understanding of the issues that this church faced at this time in history. Now, would you and I say that th- these are problems that we even face in America today, where there are cultural differences, background differences, e- even denominational differences, even in this group, we all come from different denominational backgrounds. You pull, put, pull us all together and pour us into one room, and it, it's going to require a, you know, some work with one another. Yes, uh, you know, I basically grew up in the military chapel system. That's where I grew almost my entire faith system. And in that, I got exposed to this a lot, where it was all the denominations. We were on a very small military base in Turkey, and it was every denomination. And if you were Protestant, you were in one pot. Right. You all worshipped together. And sometimes things like taking communion and Lord's Supper were, was a little touchy, right? Um, and even the ceremony of the services each week, how you did certain things, got to be touchy with some people. But what we're seeing here, and what I think is fun about this kind of a study, is, is how this author has introduced two subjects... Both of them shed light on one another when you do the word studies, but if you don't do the word study, you're clueless. Number three, what we see is it's necessary for you to to somehow timeline this in your brains that you see where we are in history in regards to the conflicts that seem to be coming up in in this 
particular chapter. And it's showing you conflicts from two perspectives, right? You know, when I first went through this, I called it external and internal conflicts. And uh, it, th- that could be even be a good title, although I ended up just cleaning it down to just conflicts and accusations, false accusations. Yes? The synagogue of the freedmen are part of the congregation, or are they anti- they're antagonistic, even to the point where they put Yeah, the result would be, the first one talks about the sharing of meals, basically, and of yeah. breads, and that has to do with something going on within the congregation. But the second one shows an absolute... A, a rift between the t- the two groups. Yes, and in the end, if you keep following this, when you follow chapter uh, seven, starting in verse uh, eight on, it's like you get the introduction to the problem that then gets brought in fullness to to the the uh, sermon that we see with Stephen in seven. So halfway through verse uh, six picks up almost, to me, a new chapter. That should have been a good division. It's a theme change, clearly, right? Um, I don't know if it's a theme change as it is. Here's the, what do you see as the theme in chapter 6? What do you see as the theme in chapter 6? Stephen is, a, you know, got to be part of the, because he's picked, and then he, argue, you know, argues against the... There's party. another connection between part 1 and part 2, huh? Then he's brought to trial with Paul's witnesses. Yeah, so yeah. Right. So we see another thing. Number one, we see Hellenistic Jews mentioned, and we see this, this synagogue of the freedmen mentioned. When you do word studies on both of those, you start to see kind of emerging how apparently Hellenistic Jews, if they had not been in the congregation, they might have been a part of the which synagogue, which is mentioned next, correct? Am I Am I probably drawing a good conclusion on that? If they hadn't, look at where they are in in 6. They're part of the congregation, correct? And they're being overlooked, right? When you get down to 8, it talks about these who are the synagogue of the freedmen. When you looked up your definition on that, how were they defined? Let me just read mine. Translates as libertine. Uh, one who has been liberated from slavery. Now, what did we say about the Hellenistic Jews? They have been slaves who were freed, right? And it says, um, or a son of freedmen, uh, denotes Jews according to Philo, or Philo, I'm not sure how you pronounce this man's name, uh, but according to him, those who had been made captives of the Romans under Pompey but were afterwards set free. And although they had fixed their abode in Rome and, and had built their own, uh, with, at their own expense, a synagogue at Jerusalem, which they frequented then at that city. So basically, the synagogue of the freedmen were, peep, were uh, Jews who lived around, who had been under some kind of slavery at some point, but had been set free as time in history passed, as we know happened. Like, for instance, with... Um, the means of the Persians when he set all those Jews free and sent them back to go rebuild, right? So as each of these uh, oppressors who, have, who still have the authority over them, but they're freeing them, now these freed men went back to Jerusalem, and for whatever reason, maybe they felt uncomfortable in those other Jewish uh, uh, synagogues. Why might they feel uncomfortable there? What was one of, probably the, one of the major... The language was probably one of the major issues for them. They couldn't really correspond very well with one another. Even if they spoke the Jewish language, it had been corrupted by being in another language, and they accepted some of the Greek words. 
Who knows? Who knows? Throughout all these generations. So when you did your, when you got your map, let's pull out your map. Let's look at that together. It talked about where these people were from. What were the places that were men- mentioned? The first one in ver- starting in verse, yeah, Alexandrian. So where is Alexandria? It's all the way down here on your map. I colored mine in blue so you could kind of see it. It's all the way at the bottom of your map. Those are the Alexandrians. And who was the next one that's mentioned? Cyrenians. And here they are all the way. They're over here on Li- by Libya. Okay, then who else was mentioned? Okay, so they're all the way over here. This is part of Turkey. Mm-hmm. And then where? Asia, also present-day Turkey. But in another section where, near Cappadocia, present-day Cappadocia. And also where Tarsus, uh, where Paul is from and so forth. That's this Asia part here. So over here, actually, is close to where, um, it's closest to Syria almost, right on the border, heading closer to uh, Jerusalem near I colored a yellow spot to mark Israel for myself so that I could see in relationship to Israel where are these places wasn't Paul from Tarsus and Sicilia or is there a different no you're right you're right Sicilia I was looking at the map through my window here and I had it backwards I was putting it over here I'm going oh that's it anyway yes from Sicilia he's from Tarsus which actually was our first two military assignments was near Tarsus just about Half an hour down the road, we were at uh, Angelic Air Base, which was right near Tarsus. I've drank from Paul's well. Yes, wow. you and yes, you may touch me. <laughs> uh, okay, we used to have a picnic at Paul's place there, where Cleopatra and Mark Anthony supposedly used to romance. Anyway, it was really cool. Yeah. Uh huh. Aha, uh-huh. that's a, right, right. Yes. Right. Okay, so that's a good point. Once you start, this is, I think to me, is one of the most important things that we can even bring to the surface on this conversation is when you start doing your work on this, you start doing your word studies, you start pulling out your maps, you start marking your little timelines, you start getting better perspective on what was going on here. And the other thing that I think is very interesting, if you want to, again, go back to what does a healthy church look like, one of the things that we can know about that very, very early church is what was going on there, conflict. So what does that tell you about conflict in a church? It is going to happen. It's going to happen whether it's over the, the which, are you from Asia, are you from Sicilia, are you one of these... Um, um, Uh, Hellenistic Jews, or are you a native Hebrew who lived in the city of Jerusalem and came into faith and you speak that language, and now you're being thrown together into one congregation. One group really only speaks Greek. They don't speak Hebrew, and all those little Hebrew ladies are sitting at their table going, 
and, and you know, and ignoring them, right? Can you see it? Sure. Oh, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least 12 step back and say, okay, we deal with it. Yes. They didn't do like Moses, trying to do all themselves, and no, we want to point the right people. I love that you that bring in. That's exactly what it is. That is. No, the, the, yes, okay, so I, I'm not going to write down all this stuff that we looked at of who these people were, but we, if you did your homework, you know wh- what area they've come from, but the result then of that is the next thing we see is what do they do about it, right? What's the resolution? What you say on the left side, church leadership and structure, that's what they did. Yep, there you go. That's exactly what they did. We see the first implementation in the church, this new thing that's been birthed, beginning to see some distinguished roles of, between leadership and serving, right? Yes. We, we see underlying this a little bit, and we'll see it again with Peter and before he goes to Cornelius and stuff. There's still a little bit of that, quote, Jewish law background. Yes. And Jews consider oh. themselves separate from... I am going to go even further than that, Craig. I'm going to say there was a big problem of them still hanging on to a lot of their previous attitudes and and prejudices. And why do you think the book of Hebrews was written? Elitism. There's some elitism. I am. I am of this this particular group, and I am exalted above you because for one thing I speak the language which is by the way the holy language have you been in a church that's fought over whether or not you could use a variety of different bible translations or do you have to do king james have you ever had been around I went through that era when that was a fight and for some of you maybe you don't remember it but because I was a military chapel wife we had that come up in our church for a while and it it was a it was actually a stink it became a stink, you know? But so what did, you, what did we need? We needed leadership to step in and say, let's resolve this. And w- fortunately, we had a very wise chaplain who was our pastor at that time, and he did. And so he, he also had to resolve when I was in that same congregation. There was a bunch of people in that group that just liked to stir up trouble. But we also had to resolve you know, the wine and the grape juice issue, you know, <laughs> whether it was real wine or whether it was grape juice and which was appropriate to, to give. And we had to go through that one too. But consequently, what's really cool is God really taught me along the ways what are church doctrines, what is the point to the things that we're doing, and what principle are we breaking? Is it sin or is this just tradition that we're looking at? And so I was able to clearly, basically... Um, separate things from this this is church doctrine but these things are traditions 
and we can do them this way or we can do them this way, and they are both acceptable. But the, the sad thing is that some, some churches teach their church doctrines, their church doctrines, not biblical doctrines. They teach their church doctrines as if they are biblical doctrine, and that if you violate those, then you have made this huge sin. So what's really cool about studying the book of Acts, I think, is some of these things are going to be coming up for us as we move through this. And you're going to have a chance to chew on this a bit for yourself and think it through and say, what, what do I believe about this church um, um, tradition that we do? Is this biblical doctrine, which is what Vanessa in her paper was said, go through what you know about your church. Is what your church doing healthy in regards to the teaching of sound doctrines, how the leadership is done, what, what they do concerning uh, discipline and evangelism and discipleship and worship? And are these things actually biblical or are they something else? And that's great. That's cool. And it's, it's going to be a challenge for all of us, I think, even as we go through this. There's going to be some things you're going to have to evaluate and say, am I doing this because I choose to, and I'm just bowing my knee to my church and saying, it's fine, this is your tradition, and there's nothing wrong with that tradition, and it doesn't violate doctrine. But if your church traditions violate doctrine, that's when you have to stop and say, hmm, am I in the right church, right? And I honestly think in many ways that, that the Dallas Theological Seminary's assignment for my daughter and all those that are in that class, it might very well be for them to make that conclusion, to say, hmm, am I really affiliated with the right church? Is it sound teachings that I'm, you know, putting myself under? And if not, maybe I need to make a church move. You know, maybe, maybe that's part of their agenda. I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing. But to me, it seems like a, a very fair and legitimate thing. And I would say for you and I, as studiers of God's word today in this setting, it's equally as valuable for us to say, am I in a church that's doing these things well? And I'm not saying perfect, but I'm saying, are they doing them well? Yes. It also applies to our daily life as Christians, okay? Sure. Of course. Right. And that's a whole other subject, but you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, she, yes. No, and I'm sure, Heinz, they've got a multitude of things that they're doing, but I'm just thinking, I wonder if one of them is that they're helping these students who are going to go out and be leaders, spiritual leaders, for them to evaluate their home churches and say, am I in a church that's solid? Or do I need to reconsider? Or maybe maybe I just need to try to make changes in my church and by talking to my pastor about these things and seeing what maybe needs to be altered in the way that we do things, if it can be. If it's not reconcilable and you can't change it because it's a church doctrine and they are holding on to it and adhering to it as if it's biblical rather than custom, then, then you have to make a decision. Are you willing to submit to that or what? You know, maybe you need to move on. These are really serious kinds of things to, to ponder on if you think of it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right, or you can preach, you can preach, you can go out and do evangelism, 
preaching sound doctrine about that is faith in Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus Christ. But what did we see happened in that second account where he said, you go and tell them the whole truth. What had just happened to those disciples? They had been arrested and put in jail. And now they were going to be sent out and they were going to be flogged. And they were going to be told, don't preach in Jesus' name, right? And so in that regard, what I think that point was brought up as one of the fundamentals to a healthy church that we're seeing is when you give the gospel, don't just say, come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. Because coming to Jesus does not mean your life is going to be great. It means that you are affiliating yourself with a very um, adversial subject matter, religion, right? And, and Jesus Christ specifically becomes a real rub for people. Just to say his name can cause trouble. And you need to understand that when you come into covenant with him, there is a responsibility on your part, and it may come with suffering. It may come with people who will persecute you for his sake, his namesake. Some, some churches teach sound doctrine, but they avoid Genesis, they avoid Revelation, they avoid hell as a subject. Have we ever done that? Yeah, well, I think we've done both. <laughs> sound doctrine what you teach, but you don't teach the whole scripture. Right, yeah. right. Then the whole balance. And also the rest of the story, as I say on occasion when I'm teaching. And so what is the rest of the story? When you're teaching that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, he is God come in flesh, that he died, that he rose again on the third day, and that he's at the right hand of the throne of God and that you must have faith in him in order to have this eternal salvation. But is that the whole story? No. Not in the context of that chapter that we just came out of where it says, now go, go and preach all this, but also give him the whole story, which is there may be suffering that will come with that choice to follow him, which means you need to be, understand that your decision is not to be ta- made lightly. Do you guys, because why is covenant? And when you stand at the altar, the wedding altar, to make covenant with your husband, he, what is one of the things the pastor says about Entering into that covenant? Well, he says, until death do you part. But he also says, don't do it lightly. Consider this and you do not enter into it lightly. You think it through. You need to know who are you committing your life to? Who are you aligning yourself with? Who are you saying you will die for, basically? You will, until death do you part, you're going to be beside this person. You're going to identify with them. You're going to be known by them. They're going to be known by you. And it's, there's this mutual thing. So when you enter into relationship with God and you're going to give the teaching of sound doctrine, you're going to give the whole doctrine. Give the full balance of the picture understanding. This does not mean your life is going to be a bed full of roses because you come into, into faith with Jesus. But what it does mean is your life in eternity is a bed full of roses because that's where your, your goal is. However, in this life, there will, be tru- there will be trouble. And Jesus himself preached that when he was here. Right? right? All right. Any other? Yes. As a conflict today in my church, even consider generations. Yes. Boy, I tell you, that's a big one, too. <laughs> yeah. Generation gap, yes. I had the worst Mother's Day. Oh. Uh-oh. And then I go to the baby class. And I have to attend the mother's class. And I go to the restroom. And I go home. 
Yeah. Yes. We try very hard, I think, precept, I, sh- I say we, like I have anything to do with precept ministries, except that I've been blessed to get to lead these. But I do believe precept ministries is very careful to be inclusive and to teach sound doctrine, not to tell people you need to change this or you need to leave that church or you need to not do that or you're too young or you're too old or your, your languages are different and so we don't want everything to do with you. Precept actually has all the curriculum in multitudes of languages. They go out through to all the world. This is a, a huge international uh, ministry, not just local. So I think they do a really good job of doing that. But I, and I think it's, it's sound to then bring those principles into the into our own personal churches, which is why I think thinking as we go through this curriculum on Acts about what does a healthy church look like is, I think, one of the essentials that we can pull out of this for personal application. So, I mean, because it's one thing. If we just go through this and look at it as historical events, we're just going to look, okay, this happened, okay, this happened, okay. this That's not going to be that beneficial. Mm -hmm. I know. And it's hurtful when they do that. Okay, so actually to take that, yes. So but to, the, if, you, if you consider it here, the complaint that the Hellenistic Jews, their, that their widows were being overlooked and that there seemed to be a prejudice against the native Hebrews, obviously if you're in Jerusalem, there's going to be more native Hebrews than there will be the others, right? Yes. So they're probably a smaller group. And because of the language barrier that was between them, it also caused a, another problem between the two groups. So you can see how this was a legitimate problem, and it probably even arose in a way that was not, it wasn't necessarily intentional. It just happened, but it, and, it's, and, and we're all can be guilty of falling into this kind of a, of a situation where we exclude people or treat them differently because of differences. And we need to be careful that we pay attention to one another and be as inclusive as we can because after all last week we learned that how do you know a a disciple of jesus christ by their love love. that's how we're that's the identifying marker of those who are in faith you will know them by their love and at this point what we're not what we're seeing here and you might be able to relate it back to what we just came out of is that here was a church that was not acting very lovingly and so what was the what was the solution? So let's move on to there. The resolution was this. We see right here offices of ministry that get developed. Offices of ministry in the church begin, right? This is the first mention of that, these offices of ministry in the church. So his resolution was to do what? What did they select? Mm-hmm. To do what? To serve. To serve. Okay, so we have selection of servants. So t- they are going to do what? They're, they were. Who were they selected by? By the way. The congregation. Okay, selected by the congregation. Again, here are some principles of how we are to do this for ourselves in our current churches. Is it the role of the pastor, a single individual, to just walk around and go, I want you to do this? No. No. That would be an unhealthy church. 
if your church does it that way and you're aware of that, that's something that needs to be talked about with your pastor, right? Here, (coughs) excuse me, what we see them is that in verse 3, it says they were selected by the congregation. Let me flip my book over here and get my pages. Okay, so then there were some qualifications that were needed. So that they, they looked for the selection of the congregation. They looked for qualifications. Okay, and that was in which verse? Okay. Back in three, who put them in charge, though? Once they, the congregation did make the selection, who actually put them in, into, er, into the work that they were going to do? The twelve. The apostles did. So it sounds to me like it was a collective agreement. First, the congregation makes the selection. They selected by a criteria of some kind of standards that they had, which is also what we saw back when they selected Matthias, right, that they had certain kind of qualifications. And then once they did that, they came together then with the apostles also, and then the apostles then either had to agree or not agree, I'm assuming, and then they implemented that. Yes? It was more that they decided, they gave authority to do the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they, it says in verse 3... Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and full of wisdom, whom we, we may whom we may put in charge. We collectively. So it's sh- yes, because the we makes it not just. He didn't say you can put them in charge. Okay, it could be the we just the twelve. Is that what you're saying? You think it's just the twelve? Okay, with that, I am totally in agreement. We know that the the 12, because we're going to move into that one next, but we see that there's leadership that gets distinguished here, right? Secondarily, though, the leadership says to the congregation, select men, and then there there is a qualification that they're to look for. And then it says, and then that we may put them into this service. Now, I, I really do think the we is all of them, and I'm going to say, um, let's go on and read this. But we devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with who? The whole, the whole congregation. So I think that that... They made a decision. Yes. The, the, the congregation made a decision. That's exactly right. So you don't think the apostles approved or disapproved either way? So once Rob Harrell says, I need, a, conger- I need a, a deacon board, you guys select him, and then I'm done with it. Whatever you say goes, and I don't have a say in it. No, that's not what he said. Okay, that's what I wanted. That's the point I was making. I think then collectively both the apostles and the congregation come together, and then they say, yes, we will put them in. Uh, then if you go to verse 6, you see that they brought them before the apostles. Thank you. That's right. That's where I was trying to get to because I hadn't read far enough down. But these they brought before the apostles, these that they selected. And then the apostles, after praying, right, then they laid their hands on them. And then, and then, then what was the outcome of that, by the way, in verse 7? What was the outcome of that? The word, it, it blossomed. It became healthy. It became strong. It had a positive response because they took a situation where there was a complaint and they found a resolution by finding a, a way to handle it and make sure it got done. 
Because basically the bottom line, what was going on in the lives of the 12 apostles in regards to the feeding of these people? It was just too much for them to handle. They didn't have the time to do it. Because what did the apostles view their role to be? Prayer and the word of God. That's right. Prayer and the word of God was their focus. Yes. Uh, no, I don't think so. But I, it is a good question. I know that some of the commentaries go off on that a little bit, and they, they focus on that. Did anybody read anything on that, about the, the idea of the seven being important? I was thinking, I was thinking that, too, when you were saying that the unity came um, in this particular miracle, that it was really kind of Well, does your church do any kind of a commissioning at all of, of its people that they send out? For, when you have a deacon, what we're going to see, I think, in time is this is the development of the deacons, right? Or it could even come out of it, the elders or the, uh, what are the other ones called? Elders and bishops or whatever, but they're, they're the, the secondary leaders underneath the primary leader. So we have the leaderships that are being identified, but are, are there not commissionings that are going on in your church for these people when they come in to, to take up these roles that are identified as leadership roles? They're not praying for, they're not having a congregational ceremony of some kind? Oh, the laying on of the hands part. That one, um, I've never been in a church where they didn't. So I don't know. I don't know exactly how to answer it. Does anybody have experience where they don't lay on hands? What would be the reason they don't lay on hands? I mean, I've never seen them do that. You know, most churches don't make as big of it. It's not like they come up and they make a ceremony and they, you know, do something really outlandish. They usually just say, can we gather together at the front? They put a hand on a shoulder and they pray. It's a private. And it's still, and it's, well, it's not private, but it's, it would be like if I came to you and we're all praying and I would lay my hands on you as we prayed. Now, if you go up to the front of our congregation and Pastor Rob is commissioning someone and getting ready to send missionaries out, how often have we seen that? They stand next to him at the podium. He usually puts his arm up around him or on their shoulder, whatever he feels is appropriate and he's comfortable doing. That, you know, he, I'm sure he's being careful to make their comfort zone feel good too, right? But he almost always, I see him lay a hand on them when he prays for them. So, and, and I don't even know if the hand-laying part is even that essential. It's the attitude of hand-laying. It's bringing them up front and commissioning them as a collective whole through prayer and an acknowledgement that they are being put in charge of something. So I don't necessarily think, it's kind of like we looked at uh, a couple weeks back at Peter where the people were coming and they were going, if his shadow just falls on me. Well, it had nothing to do with Peter's shadow, if they would be healed or not, right? 
What was, what was it that healed, according to the lame man's story in the previous, in the name of Jesus Christ? It was faith in the name of Jesus Christ they healed. So um, I think that the idea of having to lay a hand on, although I do think the churches should implement it if they can, because it does follow directly. It would be a great thing. And if your church isn't doing it, maybe it'd be something to discuss with your pastor. But my question would be, have you ever had people that have been, quote, assigned to go out and not have some kind of a commissioning ceremony in your churches. I mean, I don't think I've ever been in a church that didn't do that to some degree. So it is a pretty well thing. But if not, then I would say, yeah, that's something that they need to be challenged on. Because if, you're, if, you, are, if you have a church and leaderships within it, and th- there are people that have been assigned to basically be your spiritual leaders to some measure or another, or servants, as the deacons are considered, who are also given to be able to teach it. When we get into other books, we, we see that, that role uh, developed even further. But if they're going to be put in a position of leadership, certainly somebody needs to acknowledge that, and there needs to be an authority over them. Right. Who is the head of the, the church? Who is going to be your pastor? Um, my, so, somebody has asked me many times about women teaching in the church, and this, I know this is a, a problem with a lot of um, my generation and older, especially, that women are not supposed to teach in the church, right? Which we know is not true if you understand spiritual gifts. But what I can tell you this is my role is not a role of leadership. Although I'm leading you in Bible study, I'm exercising a spiritual gift. Who is the leader? Who's over me? The Well... I'm talking on human level. Who's over me? My pastor. Who's ultimately responsible for keeping me in line and making sure I'm teaching well? My pastor, right? And anyone he so chooses to assign to watch over me, make sure I'm behaving myself, right? And doing it right. Well, there should be somebody that's watching over me. So, you know, somebody's t- somebody better be taking care of Yeah, you guys are these two right here. <laughs> And then there's Don in the back, too. I know he's in on it, I'm sure. <laughs> Not to mention all the women here who are married to him, right? But, but you, you need to have that umbrella over you. There needs to be an authority over you. So people who are going to come into leadership roles, whatever they are, or places of service, there needs to be some kind of, quote, commissioning if they're going to be representing the whole congregation. My role is a teacher. It's different. But if you're going to go out as a missionary, if you're going to serve in our congregation as a pastor, a deacon, an elder, that was the word I was looking for, the elder, then you need to be uh, commissioned in some way. The church should have done that. And I would venture to say, do most of you think that your churches do that? Yes, they do. Yeah. Yes. Pardon? I'm sorry. No, that's a whole that you're bringing up whole new subject. I know. I don't think I want to go there. Um, but can women hold these roles? What we do know in Scripture, women were deaconesses. So that one, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm going back to our scripture stuff here. One of the statements you made was that that the, these people were holding on to their their tradition of being a Jew. Right. Okay. That what's important about the seven that they chose seven people they were oh maybe that could be I think it's a real minor point but yeah it could be yeah it's a one of those fun things to go dance with for a little while yeah I agree 
You went dancing. Good for you, Margaret. Okay, so we have the selection of the servants. Did you like my little servant guy with the tray? He's servant. (laughs) Okay. Um, So their job was to ensure that no one was overlooked and that, um, therefore, then they were commissioned basically through this process. So then what does leadership look like? So this was the servants. Now what about the leadership? Their, what did they consider their role to be? First of all, who are they identified as in this text? It's the 12 apostles. Okay, and we see that in uh, verse 2. Okay, Then in verse 3, or, oops, not verse 3, in verse 4, it says what that they do? Okay, so they desired, and I'm putting it this specific way. Did you notice that word desire? In there? Did anybody notice that in verse 4? But we will devote... Let's see. um, Okay, desirable. It's not desirable in verse 2. It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. What implication do you see in that word? This is not desirable for us. Yeah, it's not like they're saying we won't do that. And. How important do you think then also the flip of this is important that we understand what their role should be and not try to put on our pastors too much? How many of us expect the pastor, be at the hospital, be at the birth thing, be at the, uh, at, you know, at the football thing, be at the, at the youth rally, be at the, at the whatever Bible studies. And so. How, we expect, we expect, we expect. And, and our leader, our pastor is one man. He can only do so much. So if we do what uh, Kay talks about when she teaches the um, um, spiritual gifts, she talks about finding your spiritual gift and staying within locative of sphere. Find your sphere of work, the thing which you're supposed to be doing, and try to master that thing and do it really well. It doesn't mean you can't reach out and do a few other things here and there. It doesn't mean I can't reach outside of teaching and do serving in some way. I can't make somebody a meal or I can't go, you know, visit someone in a hospital. Those are other, I can't go to a prison ministry event or something once in a while. But I need to know what is my locative of sphere and do it well, Correct. So for me, it's teaching, and I try to do the majority of my effort and time spent right there. And anything else is... So do you think that fits with what he said here? It's not desirable for us to wait tables. He's not saying you won't wait tables. and He's not looking down on table servers. He's saying we know what our locative sphere is supposed to be. We've identified that our job is to do two things. What? Prayer. Prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. Isn't that exciting? And if you get that narrowed down in your mind that that is, that we each have a locative of sphere that we're supposed to identify and get in there and stick with it, that will help you release your pastor from your expectations of him being Superman, right? If Pastor, if pastor Rob hears this, he's going to love me. <laughs> he's going to go, yes, Katie, preach it. Yes. And not only that, it gives the other people the chance to use their Absolutely, gifts. absolutely. 
Yes, absolutely. And we actually went back to the Old Testament, even under the Hebrew law system, and we saw how God had instructed there to take care of the widows and the orphans, and this was an important thing to do. And so when this, quote, complaint came to their attention, they dealt with business. They said, okay, let's let's resolve this. We don't want to lose our locative of sphere as your leaders. We know what our job is. Two things, prayer and and the ministry of the word. But... If we get distracted by also serving tables, then we need to, yes, that's it. We need to delegate that work somewhere else to other people. So they desired not to, uh, or they desired to stay focused, basically, to, how did I put it on here? They desired to be devoted to, number one, uh, prayer. And we don't have time, but, oh, man, that list on prayer and ministry of the word. And I can see already that we have eaten up all of our time on just one chapter. We're, we're not even at seven, and seven is loaded. It's history, history, history. But can you see now we have, to, we have, as far as understanding what a healthy church looks like, we've already defined two things, the selection of servants and the leadership and what their defined roles are, at least initially. Later in other books in the Bible, you get them more fully developed, right? But, but when you're looking at the first mention of, a, of something in the Word of God, it's going to give you its most clearly defined understanding and its most essential points. So the most essential points for our leadership pastor is to be one who is in prayer and one who is devoted to the Word, the ministry of the Word. Right? Cool, huh? All right. Um, all right. Now, here's where the problem comes up, which takes us into 7. We start in verse... Um, uh, eight, where we see Stephen. He was one of those seven who had been selected, and those qualifications were what? Does somebody want to rattle those off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, full of of um, grace and power. All these things he, is what he was. And when when Stephen was selected and named as one of the seven, now he comes up in the second section as also beyond that he also rises up and basically he begins to distinguish himself doesn't he he starts to do he does he performs signs and great wonders and he's filled with such power that when they begin to argue with him what they can't argue they cannot they can't refute him um one of the things i saw when i looked at it it said um one second they it said um Because I looked up the word. Where was it? I'm looking. Hold on. Give me one second here. They argued with him. There it is, the word cope. Because that was the word cope. They could not cope with him. Did anybody look up the word cope? Thank you, Lisa. You read my mind so well. Thank you for being in class. (laughs) I I need somebody who helps me remember what I'm thinking. But I didn't look it up. I just know it. Okay. See? It's a God thing. I, it's one. It's oneness. That's what it is. Okay, so tell me, what do you think the word coping means in this? Co- now, to me, coping means just tolerating or putting up with something. I'm coping with it, right? But what does coping mean here? They couldn't cope with him. That's exactly right. They couldn't. There was no way for them to oppose him successfully. They tried, but he kept shutting them down, right? So they're not able to refute him. What do you think that would bring up in them? Oh, yeah. 
Can't you hear it in the background, even though it's not spoken? Don't you know the animosity was, was welling up, the, the rivalry, the, the bristling, and, and, the, and even a little hatred maybe, which begins to be made evident then as this storyline goes on, that there is an anger thing, maybe even a jealousy. Because earlier we talked about the apostles, how they would present the gospel with such power and confidence, and, and yet they were considered to be unintelligent and untrained men. And these leaders, these, these rulers and authorities of the people, they couldn't quite understand how they had such power. What did Jesus tell us, or what did the Word tell us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, would happen when the Holy Spirit fell upon us? You would receive power. That's right. And so when people stand before you and present in a way that's filled with power, this you know is the Holy Spirit. And these men didn't have that. And when they came up against it, they couldn't cope. In other words, they couldn't refute it. They couldn't stop it because everything that Stephen was doing and saying made sense, was a legitimate statement of truth, and they couldn't even argue with it when he starts speaking. And boy, wouldn't you love to be able to do what Stephen did in in chapter 7? When you come, think of the conversations you've had with people where you end up stumbling all over your words and you end up going, okay, I I should have thought. Later, you talk it over with your friends and then you go, oh man, I should have thought of that. Because it would have been so cool. Of course, I might have gotten stoned, but it would have been good. (laughs) But anyway, so Stephen becomes basically a target, right? Because he distinguishes himself. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember? They did the same thing. They distinguished themselves. They became a target. And they got thrown into the fire, right? What a great, what a great, another example of that. All right. So they were unable to cope with the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. So what did they do in response? Yeah, they drug him off to, in, in, before the court. And when they took him to the court, how did they present to the court? What were the things that they did in verse 11? Basically, they, yeah, they bribed. I looked those words up, bribed. That's the word. They bribed people. And they also made false accusations, right? Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was a bribe. Yeah, and they accused him of blaspheming against God. Okay, so then when you follow on in chapter 7, then we get to look at how he handled that. I want to start us at the end instead of the beginning. We know the false accusations were, let's put the, the accusations up here. Blasphemed. Uh, uh, God, Moses, Moses and God, right? I think it's funny how they put God, Moses in there first. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's more important than God, right? Uh, speaking against the holy place. Basically, the temple, I'm just going to change the words because that's what they were talking about, about this holy place, the temple, right? And the law. That's in verse 13, right? And also he says, we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place. Yeah. 
All right. So this particular um, section is so long. What I'm going to do, because we only have five minutes left, we're going to jump all the way to the end to come. Well, I know, I know it's terrible. I would love to have time to go through Abraham and Moses and all. Oh, you would? <laughs> really? There's an interesting point. He never gives the gospel per se. He, no, because he's not. Yeah. Number one, they've already heard the gospel. Yeah, he is not giving them the gospel. Very good point. He does not. I'm going to say he's, okay. What Stephen does not do. So this is kind of interesting. Stephen does not do. He does not give them the gospel. What Stephen did do. Okay, let's look at what he did do. Let's drop all the way at the end. And let's look at. um, Let's look at that once. Let me hold on a second. Let me get my page open here. Because I'm jumping out of order here. Let's start in verse 51. It is a good place. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lisa. See, one again, one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> she and I are in one accord. <laughs> we are. We're, we're go- <laughs> I planted her and I paid her up front. I said, just when I start messing up, just bail me out. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what he says. Okay, starting in 51, what do we see Stephen when he, he goes through this huge rendition, right, of all this history, which, by the way, can distract you and me as, as precept students. We get all wrapped around the axle on every one of these things, and we start looking at all the points. We start thinking about the story. We start going back to the Old Testament, looking it all up, getting even bigger information, and we lose the whole point. So when you get into something like this, the best thing to do is to do what you should have done, which is read the whole chapter first, look to see what is, he, what is his conclusion statements. Remember, in precept, you're always looking for therefores and for this reasons and so forth, right? Those kind of things, you should have marked them. Well, here he's, he doesn't have a therefore. He does say, though, however, in verse 48, when he's talking about that. But when he gets into 51, he doesn't really give you that transition statement. However, you can see that it's a transition, right? Because now he stops talking about what? The history. He switches from the history and starts talking about who? You guys. You men, he says, right? So what we see him now do is make a flip. He steps into the present, and he makes accusations back to them. So let's start with his accusations of them and then go back and evaluate what he gave us through those, the historical record to see how, is he, how do each of those historical uh, patriarchs that he mentions, how do they actually prove what he says right here when he makes his accusations? Okay. Well, they're so, stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Okay, so Stevens. Okay, so Stevens. And I don't know if accusations is a really good word, but he says about them. Um, boy, what, what did I put in my list? Mm-hmm. 
All right, you guys give them to me. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's all found in verse 51, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay, so we have those three. So he comes back to them after he has all this history lesson. He says, you men are stick-necked, you're uncircumcised in hearts, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And then how does he tie what he's accusing them of to what he just presented? Just as your fathers did. Just as your father. And then he says, just as your fathers did. Okay, so all that's true. Yes. And P.S. He didn't have to find a false accuser of him. And what was it that made it true? Was everything that he had just presented. He just gave the history. And by the way, as he went through and talked about um, Joseph and how the patriarchs—did you mark the word patriarchs in this as a keyword? If you didn't, it should have been marked because patriarchs actually rises to the surface as being his main focus. He says, your fathers, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. And when you go back and look at all the examples of what he gave them, he says, look, your patriarchs, they sold Joseph into slavery because they were jealous, right? Which took them down to Egypt. But you know what? Then God just made something good out of that. First of all, it fulfilled what God had already said through Abraham. Secondly, when they were down there, it, it actually turned out to be deliverance for them because through Joseph, whom they hated and sold into the slavery, through Joseph, he rescues that whole nation. Yeah. And, they end up, and they end up in their slavery for how long? 400 years. 400 years. Just as was said to who? Abraham, which he laid out at the beginning. One of her questions to us was, why does he mention Abraham first? Because Abraham, obviously, there's no conflict in there as to him doing um, any of the things that follow with the other patriarchs. But why start with Abraham? That's the, that's the foundation. From there, it establishes what were the promises to this nation whom they are. And, and what was it that God had told Abraham right from the beginning? And everything that was promise to Abraham and everything that Abraham was warned of happened just as God said. And so then as you move through the history, which is what he does, he shows them through the history how even though they knew about the promises and they knew about the, the warnings, they weren't paying attention. And they obviously didn't believe because when Moses comes along and presents himself to the people, he supposed that they knew he was to be their redeemer, right? Why do you think he supposed they knew this? Where are we in this timeline of 400 years? We're approaching the end of that 400 years, and there's going to be someone brought up. And Moses himself had been rescued in a supernatural way from, yes. from destruction, yes. right? And so, but the point, though, when he, was, he presents himself, he's about 40 years early. Isn't that interesting? So these men reject him, and he goes where? To Midian, right? out to the wilderness, and he's gone there for a while until God says, uh, Moses, excuse me, burning bush, right? right? Come on back here. I need you to do what I, what I rescued you for to begin with. And what he already knew was his 
mission and his, his call. Destiny. Right. So he goes back. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. And he rescues them. And by the way, while he's rescuing them, what is Israel doing? They're making what? a calf. They're making a golden calf. They are kicking and screaming all the way back to that promised land. They want to go back to Egypt. Do you guys remember the whole storyline? Yeah, yeah. And along the way, what are they doing regarding the law? They're they're rejecting it. They're not keeping it. They're vile. They've first the first one, "Thou shalt have no other gods before me," was blown out of the water on day one, right? (laughs) Exactly. And if anybody deserved to be stoned to death, who who did? All of them. them. Your fathers deserved to die. I mean, these are his points. And so we don't have time to go through every one of them. But if you consider each one of the points that he makes, he's showing how the fathers were rebellious. They themselves deserved to die. And you're putting them up on this pedestal. And guess what? You're just like them. They were disobedient to God. When we just came out of Ezekiel, what did we learn in Ezekiel? Didn't you just jump? I did. I just went right back to Ezekiel in my brain. And, and all I could think of was, yeah, all those false gods and the Molech worship and so yes. forth. This is you brought those with with him. And I loved the quote. I love the quote in there where he says, was it to me that you were worshiping when you were out in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. No. So what does that tell you and I about it? When he said that, wasn't he, was he talking about them making sacrifices even then? While they were in the wilderness? Yes. Yeah, they were still sacrificing children? Well, I don't know if it just developed into that as time went by, but they were, they had brought with them these gods from Egypt. They carried them with them as they were continuing those practices while they were in the wilderness. And what we know is from Ezekiel, because we just did it, how far that went eventually. They had brought it with them from Egypt by generation after generation. It just kept on and kept on and it never got squashed, right? Like it should have. And to the point that then they started bringing these false worship right into the temple of God. And we remember what one of the chapters, it was all over the walls. It was at the, at the, at the temple gate. It was at the altar gate. It was, I mean, everywhere. Huh? In the same room. In the same room. So everywhere they went. And, and they had that Tammuz God the one, that the women worshipped also, the weeping women. Yeah, so... It was this storyline here. You can get lost in the details if you don't stay on focused on this. This is his point. You guys are just like your fathers. And then what does he say about that? He then? says you betrayed, you betrayed and, and you were murderers. Yeah. Now what had they do? He makes a contrast statement here. They did what? They, they, your fathers, I'm going to put it that way. Your fathers did what? Yeah, your fathers killed the prophets. And the prophets were bringing message about what? About the the righteous one that was coming, right? And he says, and what did you do? You killed the righteous one. <laughs> you took it to the next level. Wow. That's the conclusion of this. Your fathers killed the prophets who spoke about the righteous one. You guys, you killed the righteous one. Can you see why at this point, explosion of anger. 
They just, he has just laid out the fact that throughout all history, their nation and their people and their fathers, whom they exalt and think are so great, had rebelled, had committed these grievous sins against God, all of them deserving to be stoned to death, and now they were accusing him, and falsely so, and they knew it because they had to bring up false witnesses to do so, and, and he was the one that was bringing, bringing to them and had spoken to, to them previous to this, obviously, about the righteous one. And they're putting him to death, and they are the ones who are guilty. Yeah, in the translation on 54, they were cut to the quick. Actually, the word means furious. That's rage. right. Very good. Did anybody else do that word study? Perfect. Cut to the quick. That means furious or enraged. Enraged or angered to the point of rage. So this is what happened. They weren't cut to the quick as in embarrassed or convicted or feeling bad. No, they were, I'm going to get you. Right? They were mad because he had basically proven to them that they were the guilty ones. He was the innocent one. And what happens when light comes into the presence of darkness? It exposes them totally, and they hate that. They hate that. I want to conclude with one verse from, for you, and it's one I, I, I briefly mentioned at the beginning. But in John 15, 18, it's not one that we looked at. We, we made a comparison of how this event parallels a lot with what happened to Jesus himself, right? How he be, had, was uh, falsely accused and so forth by basically these same people. All right, but in John 15, 18, it says, Now, if the world hates you, you need to know it hated me first. And this is exactly what we see in this storyline with, with Stephen. And, and you and I can take that forward to us. You and I are going to have people who are going to falsely accuse us. They're going to come against us. I, I think that we can look at the, the response of Stephen. And can, Would you say that, that we should always be meek and mild and pull back? And... No. The Holy Spirit gave him boldness. Oh, boy. Did he? And I would not say I don't want to rile anybody up and I don't want anybody looking for trouble. But I am saying I want you to know. I know nobody getting big fights this week and come back and yell at me. I want you to know, though, that if the Holy Spirit sh- should empower you to speak in this kind of a profound way, I do believe you'll know it's of the Spirit. And sometimes it comes out of you before you even realize I've done this before. I have a whole. Co- have you guys not done that to me a lot of times? Even in my teaching, I'll say a, a whole bunch of stuff. And they'll go, "Ooh, that's good. Say that again." I'm like, mm, "What did I say?" <laughs> right? But but in the moment, you let the Spirit lead you. And if your heart is that what you really want is to, to expose them to uh, uh, to seeing their sin, so that they might repent and turn. If that is your goal and it's a pure intention goal, I do believe that God will give you the power to speak with this kind of boldness that Stephen had. But Stephen, when he came against these, these rulers of the land, what was he willing to do? He was willing to die. And at the end, he says that, receive my spirit. So he understood the consequences for standing firm. Sometimes if you stand firm, you may have to pay consequences. That's another, another point. Yes, go ahead. We're done. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.